0: For years, I have been telling students in the seminary that there are obstacles to reading and preaching from the gospels, serious obstacles, the first of which is that they weren't meant to be read, but performed. In the first century Mediterranean world, people read almost always in community, and even if on rare occasions they read alone, they read aloud because they understood the gospels are performative pieces of literature. And there are still, by the way, storytellers who will come to a church and do the entire gospel of Mark or whatever from memory, and it is an amazing thing. The gospels were meant to be performed. But it's not just that they were meant to be performed and not read each gospel is meant to be heard on its own. And what we've done for years is put them in a blender and made a gospel smoothie out of them. And we've lost the ability to just hear Mark on his own. It's one thing if you're reading Matthew to kind of peek back at Mark, because that's how Matthew wrote it. He had a copy of Mark. But if you're reading Mark, the first gospel ever written, you shouldn't be peeking at any other account. You should just listen to Mark's. But That's really hard to do. And not just that it was meant to be performed and not just heard on its own, but perhaps the biggest obstacle is they seem like ancient history. You know, you you read and you go, all those people in those tunics and sandals, not Birkenstocks either, you know, and it just, it seems like tales from the Ming dynasty. Kind of interesting, but not very relevant. Harvey Cox, who taught for years at Harvard, says there was a woman in the States who wanted to make a long distance phone call to Jerusalem. She called the operator and said, I'd like to make the call. And the operator said, oh, honey, Jerusalem is in the Bible. It's not a real city. (laughs) That's an obstacle. If, If somehow the gospel just seems like something old and the Wall Street Journal seems like something new, But I have an image for us that on the eve of a new year might help us get into the pages of Mark and more importantly, get the story of Jesus in Mark's gospel into us. You have to picture an open Bible. Not not this size. Not even the family size that you used to see on coffee tables. I'm imagining an open Bible that would be about the size of the stage at Shakespeare in the park and the sloped pages on the sides would be where the characters come up. And all across the stage and waiting in the wings would be all of the characters that we find there, you know, disciples and Pharisees and so forth, but not just those folks, but us as well, teachers and lawyers and social workers, all of us standing around trying to figure out our lines and what part we play. I don't know if you grew up in a church where they did role playing in the VBS or whatever, You know, you put a little piece of paper, cardboard around your neck with a sign. Here, you be Mary Magdalene, you be a leper. I don't think that it's just a matter of one role that we figure out. I think we might look at the Gospel of Mark and see how many of these roles have we played. Like in chapter 1. Do you remember? Jesus is walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. He sees two fishermen, and out of the blue, he says... Follow me, and they do. And there's no rhyme or reason as to why he picked them and not somebody else. And there's no rhyme or reason as to why they said okay, but they do. They drop their nets when April fifteenth rolls around. It's time for do the taxes, where they've always written in fishermen. Oh, oh, hang on, disciple of Jesus. They didn't see that coming, and maybe you didn't either. I, I didn't see this coming. I was gonna do something else with my Sundays. I know that some of you were born in the church, hopefully not conceived in the church, but (laughs) some of you've been a part of this thing forever, but some of us in this group did not see this part coming, that we would somehow be swept up into the Jesus story. Or how about in chapter two when these friends, they bring this man who is sick, to Jesus to be healed, but the house is so crowded, it's standing room only, they can't get in. And, and they look up on the roof and they get this crazy idea. They hike up there on the roof with this man, they dig a hole in it, and they lower him down on a cot with ropes so that Jesus might heal him. And the sign around their neck says, Desperate. They are desperate. Wednesday morning, working on this sermon, I went to the Starbucks near my house. And you saw this scene a lot this week, people getting together to talk over the holidays, a little reunion, families, but also friends hadn't seen each other. These two families came in, they sat next to me, they were having their little reunion, but it was not the ordinary one. The daughter in one family and the wife, mother in the other were cancer survivors. And for 30 minutes, I heard them relive. Remember all that radiation? Oh, and the chemo. And, and they told stories. That's where they met. They had dug holes in a lot of roofs so that they might be well. And some of us have played that part. We have gone to God asking, please, God, heal, please. In chapter five, Mark tells a story and he he starts it this way. He says, and Jesus got in the boat and went to the other side. That's not an accidental phrase. It's like the wrong side of the tracks. It's the other side. It's the Gentile territory and not just Gentiles. He goes to a cemetery, a tomb, a, a, a graveyard, and it's very unclean. And there's a man possessed by demons, who claims his name is legion. You know what a legion is? It's 5,000 Roman soldiers. This man has 5,000 Roman soldiers living in him and they are all bent on war. I don't know how many of you can relate to this. Nowadays, we don't think of it as demons, we think of mental illness. I remember when our middle daughter was in college and the summer she worked in a psychologist's office and I dropped by one day to bring her some lunch and the moms that just kept coming in, it would just break your heart, mom after mom after mom with little boy, little girl, and this one mom, she just said, I I don't know, we can't get the diagnosis right and the insurance needs the diagnosis. Is it ADHD, is it Asperger's? I know he's on the spectrum, it could be autism. What, What do you think it is? And that is this mother's life, battling that demon, and that is this boy's life. And so we come to Jesus. I love the twin stories after that. Two times, Mark tells about Jesus looking out at thousands of people, and he feeds them. And if you look, yes, Jesus feeds them, but really the disciples do all the work. I mean, they really do. They have the people sit down. They gather up the bread, the little bit they have, the bread and the fish, and they distribute it. They have the people up. I mean, they just do so much work. Have you ever played that part where you get to feed hungry people? For more than 10 years, every Tuesday night, I would pick up the leftover bread at the Panera near us and on Wednesday morning deliver it to a food pantry. And it was important work, but delivering food to the pantry meant that I was more of a middleman. I didn't get to give bread to the hungry, And except this one day. This one day, I don't know exactly what happened, but I'm lugging in these bags of bread, and these two women who were coming there, I don't know what happened, but somehow we had an encounter, and I said, are you here for bread? Yes. Well, let's just open these bags. What do you say? And we just dove in, and I just gave them bread. That is a great part to play. You you might be playing that part this next year. I don't like the story that comes next. The disciples are out doing their thing, and they notice somebody else who is casting out demons, but they're not followers of Jesus. And so they come back, tattletales, and they say to Jesus, Lord, we saw somebody doing something kind of like you do, but they are not your followers. You know, different denomination, maybe highbrow Episcopalian or lowbrow charismatics. They lift their hands. God, we, we need to call down fire, don't you think? And the reason I don't like that is because I think of myself as a progressive, but sometimes I judge. Sometimes I say, Lord, that, that, those people can't be right. It becomes pretty apparent at this point that Jesus is gonna meet with an unhappy end. There are plots going to have him killed. So he goes into a garden and he prays, and he asks us to stay awake, and of course, we just keep drifting off. And some people have said that the church has been asleep ever since. And I think what they mean by that is related to one other obstacle when it comes to reading the gospel. And that's a pretty much a Western not just American, but a Western, European, and American kind of thing. And that is that we would read this gospel as about me and my story with my God, and it would be spiritual, and we would miss the political and the justice and the social. It's easy to do. When Jesus says to the two fishermen, follow me, that is radical because to follow him is to say, I won't follow Caesar To say Jesus is Lord is to say the emperor is not. He's not my emperor. That's radical. Jesus heals and feeds people for free. Herod was taxing fish and bread. Jesus, to follow him is radical. It's to, to make you look back at the budget and say, and what does this do to the poor? Over and over, Jesus' message is radical. And even the judging of others can lead not just to closed borders, but to closed hearts. So Jesus gets killed for how he lived, for being that radical. And then some women, some women in our group, they go on that early Sunday morning. It's not an Easter story. They're going to anoint a dead body and the stone's missing and there's some kind of messenger there and he says, go and tell, he's alive. And the women flee in terror. They don't tell a soul. And yet somehow the good news goes forth. How is that possible if they don't tell? Well, I suspect the only way it ever goes forth, despite us and by the faithfulness of God. And I love the ending of Mark, but I don't know if you noticed the beginning that I read. It doesn't seem like much. There's no verb. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Okay, what, what do you... Some scholars believe it's not a verse, it's the title. Here's the title of this thing we call Mark the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And what they mean by that is that the whole gospel of Mark is just the beginning. It's still going on. Back in the 14th century, a lady named Julian lived in an English village called Norwich. This was during a time of darkness, and plagues. In fact, she nearly died during one of the three outbacks of the bubonic plague or the Black Death. But she lived and people came from miles around to hear her because she had a vision during that time. And everybody at the time, for the most part, thought of God as dark and demanding and cursing people. In fact, they thought that the plague was God's curse. And Julian said, no, 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 I have had a vision God is pure love and grace. And then she penned one of those most famous lines in church history. She said, all will be well. And all shall be well. And you will see for yourself that all manner of things shall be well. I think in a way that's, that's how it ends. Not just Mark's gospel, but this thing we call life. That's how it ends. All will be well. Well, I don't know if any of you are in the market for a New Year's resolution you probably have enough of them but if you're looking for one here's one how about reading the gospel of Mark through cover to cover one sitting It doesn't take that long really you could even do it several times this year but read through the gospel of Mark cover to cover in one sitting and ask yourself what part should I be playing